Hello, welcome to the FilmPulse.net podcast. This is episode number 79. My name is Adam. With me today we have Kevin. How are you, Kevin? I'm doing okay. Doing okay? Good. All right, yeah. That's good. All right. Uh, today we have a great show lined up. First, we'll be interviewing director Nick Basile on his film Dark, which is currently funding on Kickstarter. Then we'll be going over some of what we've been watching before getting Film Pulse contributor Todd Wilcox back on the show for a feature review of Neil Blomkamp's Elysium. And finally, we'll be going over this week's movie predictions, new stuff on VOD, and DVD and Blu-ray releases. First up, let's have a chat with Nick Basile on his upcoming feature-length thriller, Dark. Nick, thanks so much for talking with us here. Uh, we're talking about Dark, which you, you currently have funding on Kickstarter. But before we get into that, I just wanted to talk a little bit about your background and maybe some of the uh, past projects that you worked on. Uh, sure. Uh, I, uh, well, I studied uh, film at uh, SVA, School of Visual Arts in uh, New York City. And uh, I, the stuff that I've done before this, uh, I've you know directed a f- number of shorts. Uh, I also had directed um, a feature-length documentary called American Carney: True Tales from the Circus Sideshow, which uh, came out a few years ago. Which was a documentary about you know sideshow freaks and some of the people and working acts that were still um, out in Coney Island. So. Dark would technically be my first uh, feature, my first feature narrative. And uh, I also come you know, from a background um, of theater, uh, also as an actor. So uh, I've almost done every job at one point or another in the film in- industry. But uh, my, when I was at SVA, one of the uh, people I met there, one of my friends, uh, was uh, Elias Gunster, who uh, is the writer on Gut. And he's been a longtime friend of mine. We used to work on each other's student films together. Um, and, you know, our friendship has, you know, uh, grown over the years. And he's one of those people that I rely on. He relies on me whenever we're working on a project. And uh, this was something that I had come up with the uh, concept for originally and had called him up and kind of pitched it to him and asked if he would uh, be interested in developing the screenplay with me for this. And he was, he loved the idea, and, you know, we went from there. And I actually saw Gut. Um, I, I talked to Elias via email, like, a long time ago, and he, he sent us over a screener, and we reviewed it on the site. And that was one of the things that, that interested me about this project initially was that I, I liked Gut a lot. I thought it was a really kind of unique uh, take on the horror genre. And um, that was one thing that instantly kind of drew me in. Well, the interesting thing is, I mean, yeah, that that was one of the things that was always unique um, that I felt about Elias' films when we were uh, in film school. And he made a few short films, one of them called The Voice Inside, um, which I don't know if you've ever seen. I think it's on the web somewhere, which had raised a few eyebrows, uh, you know, if you've ever seen this 13-minute uh, movie. But Elias always made very interesting kind of uh, – strange films that also were very though personal for him and me and him always had a very different sensibility i mean my movies uh and the shorts that i had made were very different uh but it's interesting as as different as we are there's a lot of also shared sensibilities and we thought with this film uh it would be an interesting blend of kind of the the um the darker aspects of a lot of his movies and then kind of the interest of where i come out of um, and which has a little bit more of, uh, I guess you could say I'm a little bit more in love with the kind of classic 
Hitchcockian type of uh, films and stuff that has a little bit more of a nostalgic feel. And this film stylistically, for me, always um, referenced back a little bit to those psychological thrillers from the 1960s and 70s and, you know, Polanski's Repulsion and even films uh, kind of like uh, that were more, not horror, but more thriller-based, like, let's say, Coppola's the, the Conversation, something like that, were always an influence to me stylistically, you know. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, so I, I thought it was going to be interesting to kind of blend me and Elias's sensibilities on this. Yeah, and I, and I think that that's going to be a, a very good thing. Now, uh, let's talk about the, the film itself. Maybe you could just give us a little um, synop brief synopsis of, of what Dark is about. Uh, Dark is a thriller set during the 2003 blackout, and essentially, um, it's about this, uh, this girl, this model named Kate, uh, who lives with her girlfriend out in Brooklyn, and, uh, when her girlfriend leaves for the weekend and the blackout happens, um, as we get into night, she starts to believe that someone is trying to stalk her, and uh, you really don't know, uh, how much of this is real or how much of this is paranoia. Um, but the film takes place basically in a 24-hour period where it starts the night before and goes all the way in to the next day and kind of really starts off as this almost New York City character piece that then slowly evolves into this suspenseful, uh, nightmarish film um, in the second half. So we thought it was an interesting way to kind of, A, do a movie that was character-based where you're only in that one character, that single character's perspective for the whole thing. And in a way, what if that point of view for the audience also wasn't um, necessarily, you know, um, you, it couldn't be relied upon. You weren't sure if mm -hmm. the way she was perceiving the world was uh, was accurate, you know, but, it, but you're with her. So the way the audience is experiencing things uh, as they happen and as the blackout happens is all through kind of her her perception of uh what what things are going how things are going to happen and how things are going on now one of the big things about this film is that you were able to get uh joe dante as an executive producer uh, how how did that come about well it's interesting we we started with this project we had uh, started development with another uh production company in new york and we were actually prepping to shoot this film last summer uh, and all of a sudden the money fell through, um, and, you know, which is not unusual, I guess you could say, with, you know, indie movies. Um, so we had to de decided at that point to part ways, but the actresses, you know, who are still, you know, Alex and Whitney, were still um, on board, so we started to shop it around, and uh, it kind of went into turnaround, if you will, and, and I eventually took it over to Renfield Productions, which is, you know, Joe Dante and Mike Pinnell's company. Um, and uh, Joe Dante and his people really liked the, the script. They loved this idea of uh, using the 2003 blackout as a backdrop for a thriller like this. Um, and kind of these, as he puts it in his one video, like a, a locked room mystery type of film. Uh, and we took it from there. And we thought it was a great opportunity to be able then to go the next step and take it to Kickstarter. Um, and it was something that... Uh, Dante and his company had done prior on uh, Trailers from Hell, and we wanted to do it with this, and we we're seeing how that goes now. <laughs> <laughs> so the the Kickstarter project is that's to raise money for the actual production of the film, right? Correct. Yes. So you're looking to get uh, 
$48,500, which is, that's low. That's pretty low. That's not the whole, yeah, right. That's not the whole budget of the film. We have um, some other money, and then we also have some other investors who are interested in matching uh, once we finish out this um, campaign. So that was part of the thing is to also see if not just reaching the goal, but seeing how much we could overraise um, uh, to uh, to then have that matched, you know. So the initial funds to get it basically kick-started, we, we needed uh, a minimum of about uh, $50,000. And then the rest of it would be coming in from uh, other investors. Yeah, and it looks like you're well on your way i mean you're you're already halfway there with uh 26 days to go as well yeah, so i i gotta be honest i mean we, we we did a lot of work i mean we planned for over two months and what all, all you know all the aspects of the campaign took our time on working on these the video and then the video exclusives that we're doing every week the perks but um so we, we were confident that it, it should do okay but we we uh were even ourselves were actually uh, impressed and surprised that um, it reached the halfway mark as quickly as it did. So hopefully, you know, uh, it keeps going that way and we can continue keeping the campaign fresh as, as it goes along. Now, I think one of the big things, one of the, the big selling points to this project, in addition to being able to see the film itself, is some of the perks you have. I was wondering if you could highlight some of those because you got some really great perks in here. Oh, yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah, we... We figured that, uh, I mean, part of the appeal of having Joe Dante on board is the fact that you have such a fan base, you know, including myself, you know, uh, for um, his over of movies, including, you know, Gremlins and The Howling. And, so uh, we have a lot of stuff going from, like, the, the new collector's edition of uh, Blu-ray of The Howling that's signed by Joe to uh, some Gremlins memorabilia, posters of Gremlins signed by uh, Joe Dante, um, we even have stuff, you know, for even higher donors. Of course, we're giving away stuff from Dark, the picture itself, once it's done, poster art and things of that nature. But for higher donors, we're even giving away um, opportunities uh, to uh, essentially buy producer credit or uh, actually get a small walk-on role in the film. So it, it's, it runs the gamut from uh, Dark stuff to Dante stuff to... Uh, chances to actually be part of the production in some way, which it seems like that's one of the appeals of Kickstarter now is really um, putting putting these films out there or the, these pieces of work that the audience and the contributors really can feel like they're an active part of it as, as the movie's being made. Yeah, absolutely. Um, is this your first Kickstarter project that you've been involved with? Yeah, this is my first Kickstarter project, and it's interesting. I mean, I, I had started supporting... Um, other friends' uh, projects, uh, mostly some uh, smaller theater projects off of Kickstarter, um, and I had been unaware of it, you know, until that started. And that was about maybe a year or so ago when I, you know, uh, and I never, I mean, I thought of it for a film, but I always, I never thought of going the whole for a whole feature off of it. Um, but as we saw, you know, the popularity of it grow, and of course, you know, what really made it popular within the mainstream, at least that people now know what Kickstarter is, is through Veronica Mars and Zach Braff, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, that uh, when we started working with Dante's company, this was one of the things that we had decided we would try to do, you know, that this would be an avenue to get something like this made. 
So yeah, this is the first time, and it's very interesting. I mean, I'm, it's, there's a learning curve. You're you're interested to see what works, you know, and we're constantly trying to um, change or maybe add perks to see like what what people respond to on there. Now, uh, we we've talked to a lot of directors that have Kickstarter projects, but I don't know if we if I ever asked the question, how do you feel as an independent director using Kickstarter? Do you feel that all of the like the Zach Braff, Spike Lee, Veronica Mars stuff. How? What is your take on that? Uh, I think like a lot of things, it's a, it's a double-edged sword. I think that uh, the Veronica Mars and you know Zach Braff they bring visibility to Kickstarter. I think that it legitimized Kickstarter in a way. So if you you know you're going to do a Kickstarter campaign, you know, and you have some people in your production involved. It's not like, you know, it's now a completely legitimate way that um, filmmakers are, are raising money for movies. At the same time, you know, um, just coincidentally, because, you know, uh, Spike Lee has his campaign and it went about one week before ours, uh, the tough aspect of that was that sometimes certain press that we may have gotten uh now had just done a story about Spike Lee's campaign, so they weren't as interested in then doing a follow-up the very week, the very next week later with you know something that involved Joe Dante on Kickstarter. So sometimes there could be a Kickstarter fatigue as mm-hmm. far as uh, press is concerned when you have a lot of celebrities. So I think it, that that unfortunately is like a byproduct of it. It, it, it is a double-edged sword, you know. But, um, you know, I think at the same time, it's too early to say, <laughs> you know, what's good or bad for this because you want to see what, how this continues to evolve, you right. know. It, so. Well, I think that uh, hopefully it'll maybe stay, stay the way it is because I, I think that it could go very south if, um, like, bigger studios see that this is working and start getting involvement more involvement with it and and i think if something like that starts to happen where like actual studios get involved then i think it could take a turn well yeah because then you what they're doing would be just and it would be so transparent that it's just a marketing strategy and who wants to just be part of a marketing focus group and for you to give money for studios marketing focus group which is you know you don't want it to become yeah exactly well, uh, thank you so much for taking some time to speak with us, Nick. Again, the feature is dark, and we'll be sure to have the uh, link in the show notes and all that fun stuff. So thank you very much, and best of luck. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. Thanks again, Nick. Be sure to click on the Kickstarter link in the show notes and help get this film made by making a donation. While we're talking about Kickstarter, I just want to do a quick plug for everybody out there. If you have a Kickstarter, Indiegogo, any kind of crowdfunding project, and you want us to feature it on the website right there in the sidebar until the project runs out, so it'll be up there for the entire time, just go ahead and click on the link. There's a link right below uh, the featured project there, and you can uh, fill out a form and get your, your project featured on there and get some exposure. Let's go ahead and talk about some of what we've been watching. Ernie started it off last week, so I'm going to start it off this week. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's how we're going to do it. Um, Fantastic. I saw a ton of stuff, as usual. A lot of it bad, as usual. (laughs) Uh, Classic Adam. Classic Adam. Started the week off with Chud. 
from 1984. Chud. Chud, yeah. This is a kind of a horror kind of a horror movie, I guess. You would you would call it, but it's got um John Hurd and Daniel Stern from Home Alone in it. That's I like that. Yeah, uh, basically it's about a radiation leak that happens in the sewers of New York and the homeless people that live underground become mutants that kill people sweet i'm totally watching this as they call them chuds and i can't remember what the acronym means that was gonna be my question uh yeah i I just it was fine it's on netflix so you can check it out are you serious yeah there is a chud too but the chud yeah yeah there is i didn't watch is is that on netflix that That one i I would like to do a double bill yeah probably I mean, it really, it really wasn't bad. It, it kind of reminded me of um, maybe some early John Carpenter stuff, okay. but it's you know a cheesy kind of B movie. Then I saw Casting by, which was on HBO on Monday. This is a documentary about casting directors, and it has a ridiculous number of people in it. I mean, they get interviews from like Martin Scorsese, Robert De Niro, <laughs> Clint Eastwood, Robert Duvall. Robert Redford, just tons and tons of people. Okay. And it's all about the the casting director. And it specifically talks about the life of Marion Doherty, who is probably one of the most famous casting directors. And it's a shame because it also kind of talks about how they don't really get any recognition in the industry. <laughs> yeah. Like there's no Oscar for them. Um, and really it's the casting director can make or break a movie. You know, who who they cast in a role is vital to a Indeed. film. Unsung heroes. Yeah, and it's a shame because uh, Marion Doherty died in 2011, and there was a, a big petition to give her an honorary Oscar, I think maybe in 2010 or somewhere around there, and they, they declined it. They didn't do it. How do you, how do you just decline something like right. that despite <laughs> having like and they were like reading the letters and it was like huge huge people in the i mean some of the biggest directors and actors and i mean this woman when you see this documentary you're like this woman should absolutely have an oscar she basically discovered all of the big a-list actors that that we know today and I didn't know this, but there's a show called Naked City that came out back in the 50s. And a lot of she worked on that before she started doing movies. And she discovered a lot of these actors and cast them in this, this show, Naked City. And this is where, like, uh, Robert Duvall, um, Christopher Walken, John Voight, tons of people got their start on this this uh i think it was like a procedural and it took place in new york but jack Lugman, tons of people dude you look at that cast list peter yeah this this is ridiculous yeah they all got their start on this uh naked city show and um that was all due to uh marion doherty so i i definitely recommend checking it out if you're if you're a fan of movies it's worth watching definitely uh then i saw magic magic Magic, magic. Yeah, this is uh, part two of the. Well, not part two, but when Sebastian Silva made he made back to back movies. He did this and Crystal Fairy, 
back to back with Michael Sarah. I didn't see Crystal Fairy yet. It's not out yet, but I think that this one is probably going to be better. It's sort of a psychological thriller, maybe a horror movie, but I would say it's more of a thriller. Stars Michael Sarah and Juno Temple, and uh, I was really surprised at this movie. It, you don't, like when you watch it, you just have this feeling of unease and dread. Like the entire time you're watching it, it just leaves this bad taste in your mouth because it's just so. The way that it's filmed, it just makes you feel shitty. <laughs> and it's supposed to. Like, it, it's about this girl who visits her friend and ends up hanging out with her her friend's friends in Chile in this kind of remote house. And she starts getting freaked out because they're kind of weird. And she thinks that they're, like, out to hurt her and stuff. And she <laughs> sort of has this kind of breakdown. And you never, you never know if everything is in her head and she's just slowly going insane or if the, the people do have kind of like n- nefarious thoughts or plan- are planning nefarious things with her. Yeah. And uh, so I, I definitely recommend checking that out. It's on, I believe, DVD and VOD right now. But I thoroughly enjoyed The Maid. Which he made back in 2009. Uh, yeah, I think... So I'm going to have to check it out. Yeah, I think... I mean, the thing about it is the the characters in this movie are so despicable. Like, you just hate everybody because they're just such assholes. <laughs> but and, and, but Michael Sarah, oh my god. He plays, like, the best... I don't know what you would even call him. But <laughs> he, he's great in it. Uh <laughs> Saw Amityville Horror, which is a documentary about the the real-life Amityville Horror. But specifically, because there's been tons of documentaries about that, specifically it follows the life of Daniel Lutz, who was the one kid in the family. Mm-hmm. And he, he, like, would never talk to press or anything like that. And then finally he agreed to make this documentary and sort of move on with his life. So it kind of goes over that. Um, if you saw The Conjuring or if you were, if you were into that, the, the Warrens, Ed and Lorraine Warren, they're, they're in this movie. And, um, or at least Lorraine is, Ed's dead. But, huh. but they, they talk about the Warrens a lot because they were involved with investigating the Amityville horror. And it, it doesn't, really, doesn't really try to sway you one way or the other about did it happen did it not happen anything like that it's more about the effect of the events on this this guy who's like now in his 40s and he's like all fucked up because of it and it's just it's kind of it's kind of weird there were there were some pretty freaky moments to it like there there were a couple things that i didn't know about with that whole story and i mean regardless of whether or not you believe in that it happened uh, it, it's undeniable that, that something strange occurred. I mean, if not the Amityville like haunting, the the murders that happened b- beforehand. You know, there was a, a family murdered there. A, a guy killed his kids and his wife. But the interesting thing was he used a shotgun and he killed them at nighttime when they were sleeping in their beds. Mm-hmm. But... None of them were drugged. None of them were like tied up, and it's 
a little weird that he would be able to kill his entire family without any of them getting out of bed. Yeah. Because they were in separate rooms. Uh, then I saw A Measure of Sin. This is not out yet. Hopefully it'll be out at some point soon. Uh, this is kind of a, an art house horror film about a woman who grows up in isolation and her mother dies. She escapes and then ends up in this weird with this weird family that also keep keep her in seclusion and it's like a weird religious family where there's like one guy and then like 10 women in the in the family (laughs) uh i would recommend it if you're into really abstract surreal type of horror stuff like i would probably closely related to to calvin lee readers stuff okay it's not quite as weird as that. I mean, it does have like a narrative that you can follow, but it's it's still very artsy and I enjoyed it quite a bit. The only thing that I kind of had an issue with was the the entire film, there's very little dialogue and mm-hmm. there's everything is told through narration. So like almost the entire movie is narrated by the main character. Yeah. And and the the writing is great. So, like, that's not a problem, but I couldn't help but thinking that what would this be like if there was no narration and it was just images? And I think that maybe for me, at least, it would have been a little bit more effective if I, I kind of had to figure everything out on my own as to what yeah. was going on. But either way, it was shot on 16 millimeter. It looks like it was something made straight out of the 60s or 70s. So I instantly liked that, but... If hopefully it will be coming out soon, and I recommend it. Uh, then I saw the Ecstasies of Women, which is a uh, that was my Grindhouse Weekly pick for the week. It was directed by Herschel Gordon Lewis, although he didn't initially attach his name to it, and it was pretty shitty. I mean, it was like really, it was a, a one of these campy sexploitation movies. It was shot in two days, apparently. So. It's uh, it's pretty bad as far as there's tons of continuity errors. People from people in the film flub lines and they just leave it in, like they they outright fuck up and they just leave it in. Uh, some of the characters forget the other characters' names in the movie. It, it's really really poorly made. And basically, basically, it's just about a guy who is at a he he's on um he's at a bachelor party he's about to get married and he's at a strip club and he's like reminiscing about his previous sexual partners and so it'll be him having a pointless conversation with his buddies at the strip club and that'll be a flashback to him meeting some girl and then having sex with her and then it'll be like back in the strip club and. It's just so ridiculous when you when you watch it. Absolutely ridiculous. It sounds like fun. This is on Netflix, believe it or not. I I did notice that because <laughs> I saw I saw your Grindhouse Weekly article, and then as soon as I got on Netflix, it popped up, and I'm like, hey, that's the thing Adam just watched. Yeah, it's it's on Netflix. Uh, one of the one of the funniest things about it, I thought, was just how it ended. So. After he's done, there's like three flashbacks. And one of them was particularly funny because they just show him drive. He's just driving. 
He's just on a drive. Pulls up to a stop sign, and a girl j- just randomly runs up and jumps into his car and propositions him for sex. Dude, that happens all the time. The the best part of the movie though was was the end in which him and his buddies take the strippers back to his house. They have a giant orgy, and then when they're done, the strippers like, "Oh, I wish I would have met you ten years ago." And he's like, "Why?" And she's like, oh, I might have had a shot. And he's like, all right, let's get out of here. And she's like, what? He's like, what about your wedding? And he's like, he's like, don't Fuck worry about that. the wedding. Fuck that, dude. And they get and they just get dressed and leave. I'm gonna give you your shot. I just a shot a shot at what? It was just ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. It sounds amazing. It's it's pretty funny. I mean, it's really short too. It's like 74 minutes or something. So. Sounds amazing. Yeah. Uh, then I saw The Conspiracy, which is a mockumentary. This is on demand right now, and I think that it's out on DVD as well. Uh, it was pretty much, it was kind of average throughout the first two acts, and then the final act got crazy, and that's really what made makes me want to recommend it. The, the end is so tense, and uh, I thought it was great how they ended it. It's basically about a two guys that are making a documentary about conspiracy theorists mm-hmm. and their main subject suddenly disappears mm-hmm. and like his house is ransacked completely emptied out there's no they can't find him anywhere so then they decide to focus the film on finding this guy and they start to uncover a lot of a lot of things involving secret societies and stuff and they use a lot of like stock footage and talking head interviews to make it seem feel very real, but it's the end that really makes it worth it. Uh, then I saw Ghoulies. Ghoulies. Yeah, this is from 1985. This was a boredom watch while I was working one night. Uh, It'll it, get you in the end. It, it's sort of like Gremlins in a way, but it's like a shitty version of Gremlins. <laughs> Because the ghoulies serve no purpose to the film. So basically it's about a guy who like inherits this old house and he like fixes it up and he, and he starts doing these rituals, I guess somehow like resurrects these like little creatures. It's really dumb. They made like four of them or something too. So. Wow. Really? Yeah. Did you follow it up with uh, Rockula? No, I didn't. Well, you should. You should check that out. Probably should. Just looking at it right here. Tony Cox is in it. Yeah. It's from 1990. Well, one one thing to note is that Mariska Hargitay was in Ghoulies. No. Yeah, and she was like... Are you serious? Yeah, she was like super young. That's amazing. Uh, then I saw Lovelace, which I have a review for that up on the site. I also have a review, a, a more detailed review of A Measure of Sin, A Measure of the Sin. So check that out too. But I did not like Lovelace in the slightest bit. I actually, mm. I gave it a five out of ten, but I'm actually going to drop that score because is I it, is it one of those that the more it stews in your mind? Yeah, it's just it was just pointless. It was a nothing of a film, and what they do in it, the way that they structure it, was infuriating. They play like half the movie and then they jump back to stuff that we already saw and like expand on it to reveal that she was being abused this whole time like we didn't already know that 
Like it was just, it was such a slap in the face, and I, f- I felt that it was actually like kind of disrespectful, and the just the way that it was structured was so ridiculous. Like the beginning of the movie was her in a bathtub, like looking all haggard, smoking a cigarette, and then there's this voiceover with her being interviewed by Chloe Savini, and they cut to it like once, and it, and I was thinking to myself, oh okay, so this is like the through line, you know, this is how. We're going to see the story. She's telling her story to a reporter. Yeah. Right? But that's not it. That's not what happened. It was just like, Chloe Savini was in this one little scene, and then they just dropped that shit. <laughs> just dropped it. Yeah, I mean, James Franco plays Hugh Hefner. He's in it for all of two minutes. Uh, I don't even know why he was in it. I guess he just probably wanted to play Hugh Hefner. But yeah, this is on demand right now. Playing select cities, cannot recommend it. Well, I just from the guys that did how. You remember that? You remember that pile? You don't remember how? The Ginsburg. Oh, the Ginsburg one. Yeah. Yes, with Franco. Yeah, that was awful. Yeah, I remember that. I didn't even finish watching that. Actually, how could you? I I don't know. How could you? I didn't finish. I remember I was I was in Pennsylvania when I started watching it, and I was like, nope, I'm done. And then finally, I saw Clear History, which is the HBO film uh, with Larry David. Ton, ton of people in it too, and uh, it's got one. One of my favorite things was the fact that like his three buddies were Danny McBride, Michael Keaton, and Bill Hader. That's that's perfect. Yeah. I was that's like, perfect. yeah, I was like, this is this is great. But basically, if you like Curb Your Enthusiasm, you'll like this. I mean, it's directed by Greg Matola, and it has. John Hamm's in it. He sort of plays the the rival or the bad guy, the guy that Larry David's going after in the film. Mm-hmm. Liv Shriver's in it. He plays a Chechen. Uh, <laughs> he plays like a Chechen sort of arms dealer. <laughs> yes, it's it's really funny. I I recommend it if you like Curb. If you like the style of comedy of Curb Your Enthusiasm. Go see it. I mean, it's not mind-blowing. It's basically like a two-hour episode. <laughs> I, I want to see this. Oh, you should, this. You would, you'll You definitely like it. Fantastic. Yeah. That's all I got. Uh, well, I finally got around to watching uh, Post Tenebris Lux, which is, if I remember correctly, this was one of my most anticipated films of the year, back when we did that whole thing. Yeah. And it did not disappoint uh, as soon as it popped up on the screen, it was amazing. Yeah. And it pre- pretty much kept that the whole way through. The, the The cinematography is just absolutely amazing. And I love the, the experimental use of the beveled lens. I think I said I, something about that in my review. I, 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 I enjoyed like, that. Yeah, I like that a lot, too. I mean, I was. I do remember when we first talked about this film that I was. I was a little bit apprehensive because I was afraid of like how much he would use it. Because I. I had this dreadful feeling that he was going to use it like the entire time, and it was going to become very distracting. Mm-hmm. But he only uses it <clears throat> in uh, certain parts of the film, which was quite nice. I enjoyed it. And a lot of stuff to you know glean from the film, digging into it deeper. Sticking with me for a couple of days now. I want to. I want to see you dig deeper into the bathhouse orgy scene. Um, the bathhouse orgy thing was, uh, if I remember, if I remember correctly, 
I think that that was the dream of his wife. Because I can't remember, I can't quite recall exactly where it was placed in the film. But I think it was a dream of hers where um, she's trying to work her way through his porn addiction. Because you have to imagine, you know, he said that he can only have sex with his wife after watching porn. So I would imagine that when they do have sexual intercourse, that it's very porn-like, mm-hmm. where he's just plowing into her. And so when she's having sex at the bathhouse orgy type deal, she sort of overcomes that. But, um, you know, she sticks up for herself and tells the guy that she ha- that he has to be more gentle, that he has to be, you know, take his time. And then she ends up enjoying it. So I think that's what that was. I saw that on the big screen. Did you see I wish I saw it on the big screen. That was, uh, once, once that, there were a lot of walkouts of that screening, let me just say. A lot of walkouts. A lot of walkouts? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, uh, I can see it. I can see it. It looks great on the big screen, but it's, it makes it harder to watch it because it's on the big screen just because you're just like you know where where is this going what's happening this is it felt like it was taking a long time to get where it was going it did, it did take quite a quite a while yeah, with movies like this i think that sometimes maybe it's better to view them at home because you can you know pause it go get a drink just remove yourself from it for a couple seconds well uh, yeah that's i absolutely love that i wish all films just came out on VOD so I don't have to leave my house. <laughs> well, but at, at the Fantastic. same time, at the same time, there's really nothing like seeing a movie in a theater, though. No, like, that's true. I, that is that, that's the problem. I mean, just imagine that that opening scene of Post Tenebrous Lux with the girl walking around. Like, imagine that on a big screen. Like, it looked I, amazing. I, I want to see that on IMAX. Yeah, it looked amazing. It's just uh, unbelievable. And it pisses me off that I learned that that's Carlos Regadas's actual house. Like, they just filmed at his house. Oh. That's that's where he lives. That's nice where house. the fucker lives. I'm jealous. Imagine walking out and seeing that every day. Nice house. Shit. So, yeah. Definitely one of my favorites of the year. It's like top five of the year. They'll probably place it at, like, number three. Wow. It might move up. I don't know. That's just initial response. <clears throat> Um, and then I watched Raging Bull again. This was a rewatch. This is, I've talked about this before, my wife's going through films that she hasn't seen, that she's uh, sort of ashamed of. So Raging Bull is one of them. And I thought, you know, I'll just write my R children review. I'll just work on that while she's watch, watching Raging Bull. Um, I got like two sentences in and I had to watch Raging Bull again. Hmm. Like, you can't do it. Like, as soon as that opening comes on, which is, like, one of the greatest openings to a film, just De Niro in slow motion, dancing around a gym, shadow boxing. Oh, my God. This movie is just amazing. Perfect. In almost every way, shape, and form. And it's just sad to see what happened to Scorsese. Well. Because his films just, eh. I don't know. I but, think there could be a lot of arguments there over that. It could be. I mean, be. I don't think that he has varying degree. Like he he goes for different things. I mean, he's always trying something different in his movies. I mean, certainly he hasn't achieved the same level as Raging Bull, but that no. doesn't mean that. No, and know, that, that's the that's the difficult thing for him is he exploded onto the scene with like such perfectly made films. 
perfectly constructed and composed that man that's tough to live up to you can't that's difficult to maintain throughout your career i still think he's one of the best directors oh yeah oh yeah i think he's I one mean, of the best directors working i mean he's also one of the the best people for cinema ever oh absolutely just the instant the institution of cinema have you seen the the wolf of wall street trailer um if you haven't you gotta watch that i think i have if you see as soon as you see that trailer it was the Who's, i think it was the kanye west song playing oh shit you gotta see that shit it's it looks so good i cannot wait oh yeah so yeah raging bull sucked man so if my our children review sucks blame raging bull and uh scorsese there that was their fault <laughs> um then I watched a. Uh, I signed up for Mubi, you know the little website there called Mubi. Yeah, yeah I, I signed. I, I signed up for that for that thing, and I checked out a uh, long lost, uh, never really been released Agnes Varda film called Lions Love, which stars uh, Menage Trois of Andy Warhol superstar actress Viva and James Rado and Jerome Ragney, who are the creators of the musical Hair. Mm-hmm. And it's just them like hanging out, just doing their thing. And this movie is very bizarre because it's it, cinema verte style. It looks like you're just watching them live their lives, but you can't tell what is um, like performance art and what's actually them just existing and being themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and they just to have to live with the three of these guys, the, the, this, these three is just exhausting. And one of the main things is that they decide to um, rent children because they're thinking about having kids. So they decide, let's, let's give it a test run, rent some kids, varying age ages, and, and it goes terribly wrong. And they end up like they're giving Dr. Pepper to the, like an infant. Hmm. They won't go to sleep, so they, they give them sleeping pills and tell them it's candy. It's just it's ridiculous. And then, you know, they sort of comment on Hollywood and just how ridiculous Hollywood is. And then there's a long <clears throat> digression into, like, the Robert Kennedy assassination, which they just watch on TV and sort of make fun of. And, I mean, really the only reason you would ever watch this is if you're a huge Viva fan or if you're a Varda fan. Mm. Outside of that, you're never going to watch this. It was, it was okay. It's a myth, and then I followed it up with another myth, which is to the wonder. Yeah. Finally got to see the epic sprawling Terrence Malick film about love or something, whatever the fuck it's, it's supposed, it's supposed to be about love. But I don't find I don't find that yeah. it works on that level. No, it doesn't. It's just it's it felt like an extended commercial for like depression medicine. Honestly, just like a long form version of that. Um, I don't, I, my main question for Malik is when you do these films, why do you get big name actors to be in them and then do nothing? I don't understand. Yeah. Like there's no point. Yeah. You're, you're just wasting money here. I couldn't get into it. I mean, it looks beautiful. Of course it's Malik, but even in the beginning, like the early stages of the film, the camera work was just driving me up the wall. I couldn't stand it. Just swooping left, swooping right, spinning around, tilting up in the sky. All this shit just constantly, over and over again, shot after shot after shot. 
cut after cut. It was just ridiculous. I couldn't take it. And I I wanted to turn it off. And then it finally it slows down and goes into that more standard Malik meditative phase, you know, with the long shots and mm-hmm. the, you know, and the camera drifting around. So thankfully that happened because if it was just that over and over again, I I wouldn't have been able to take it. I would have stopped it dead in its tracks. But uh, there is some great uh, dialogue in this film that's delivered via whispery, um, whatever the fuck you want to call that, the inner dialogue shit, which is his, I appreciate Malik and I'm glad that he makes films, but his poetry is just awful. It's so terrible. I can't, it's, to me, it's just laughable. And I give you an instance where Rachel McAdam goes, I'd rather have a moonbeam than like her life that she used to have or something like that. I laughed out loud at that. That was just hilarious to me. And the ridiculous questions that he poses, like, where are we when we are here? And all, like all that shit. That's just so goddamn easy to do, to just ask these broad, big time questions. And then, you know, sort of, I just imagine him patting himself on the back and be like, damn, good job, Malik. That was really insightful. Got a boy, Terrence. Yeah. <laughs> just beside himself with profound thoughts. I am awesome. Yeah. And I mean, I, I know a lot of people give him that pretentious stamp. You know, they, they say that he's pretentious. And I can see it. I can see why people think that. Uh, with this movie, definitely. And to a lesser extent, well, no. I'd say equally with Tree of Life, too. Like, But yeah. like I said, I mean, all art that's fit for public consumption is pretentious. If you think about it, if you really break it down, it's essentially a person going, I have an idea, and I must share it with the world. They think it's that important. So it's all pretentious. But for him to go the extra step and be like, I need to make a film about my thoughts on the meaning of life. And... Then followed up with a film about the majesty of love. But see, but and that's the thing. Like, I just didn't find I didn't find the love in this I, movie. I, yeah, I mean, I I'm pretty sure that's what he was going for. No, it I seemed it's like he definitely was, you know, what he was going for. It, but for me, I, I just I can't take the dialogue. It sucks me out of the film. It, it it's in the same vein of like only God forgives. I just wish that there was no dialogue. Just have your characters sh- just shut shut their mouths. And just give me the images because it just completely sucks me out. I can't take it. Yeah, you should just be doing like Quatsakani type films. Well, why why can't he make a movie that looks this good and has decent a, a decent story or a decent? Because well, number number one, he can't write a story. I mean, that's been proven through all of his films. He only knows how to do his poetry thing, which to me just put out a poetry book. And a film with none of the poetry in it, and just put them out together. Like read these read these poems while you're watching this film. I would be okay with that. But them delivering their dialogue with the whispery stuff. It, oh my god! And I I have this image in my head too that they as they were working on it, Ben Affleck probably had a ton of more stuff to say, like in the original cut. And then Malik heard like two seconds of it, and it was like shit. We got to cut all that because he was absolutely terrible as soon as you hear his whispery poetry stuff oh my god i just busted up laughing what'd you think about uh when he was when he was speaking french (laughs) it's it's oh my god i just you have to see badlands 
I know I do. I know I do. That I'm going to end up watching all of Malick's films. I mean, I, I do. There is a part of me that thoroughly enjoys them, but at the same time, I'm just irritated beyond belief at the same time. Well, at least for me, Badlands is the exception to everything. Like to me, that that one was. Where it actually works. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was a ten out of ten. It's. I. I just loved it. I loved that movie. I just. And the weird thing is, is I thought this movie actually came at like the perfect time too. This was. I was celebrating my five year wedding anniversary. I'm like completely filled with like optimism and hope and love and all that stuff. And so I thought this was going to be like this. Essentially, this was perfect timing for To the Wonder. And it fell completely flat, which is not good. I mean, that really says something. Yeah. That I was in the perfect mode to see this film, and it did nothing. Yeah. Didn't do anything for me either. Yeah. It was just tedious beyond belief. Um, and then I watched another film, one movie called They All Lie, which is by Matthias Pinheiro. Um, This is a film from 2009. And this is a perfect example of being able to make a thoroughly enjoyable film with almost no budget, no story. I mean, there's pretty much, there's a lot going on here, but at the same time, nothing going on here. It's mm. a very, very thin story. It's just essentially a story built upon lies and more lies. And you can't tell what the characters, um, you know, what they're saying, what it, what's real and what's not. Everything's like an elaborate hoax everything's like they're conning each other constantly and it's just it's absolutely amazing though at the same time like i completely sucked into it mostly because the camera work is just amazing um use a lot of soft focus which was nice but also the the camera movements themselves were just they weren't so intent on showing you like what's in the foreground it seems like the camera was just like drifting through this story like it was its own character right and just, you know, popping in on things here and there. And they do a lot of, you know, just like floating tracking shot type deals. And the characters are just, you know, shifting through the house. Just the way that they would hit their marks and be perfectly timed at their places when the camera was coming through. It was quite an achievement. So I I thoroughly enjoyed that and I'm looking forward to it. He has a new movie uh, called Viola, I think, Viola, coming out this year. Which I want to see. There was a I found out about him because there's a there's a pretty big write up of him and his films in the uh, the newest film comment. I saw that, yeah. So that that got me interested, and then of course it popped up on movie, and I was like, perfect timing. Thank you, movie. And then I followed it up with the biggest piece of shit of this year, which is Kid Thing, by David Zellner. This is my first one out of ten review for Film Pulse. It's uh it was a special occasion. I was very excited. I mean, it didn't start out as a 1 out of 10. Well, it did. Like, right off the bat, I was like 1 out of 10. Because I didn't even want to finish this. But I guess I am i don't have the stature of a Rex Reed to just stop a film and review it. Hmm. So I finished it. And I was like, right off the bat, I was like, this is 1 out of 10. I actually want to give it a 0. But I don't know if we can do that. Do we do that on Film Pulse? You can do a, do a, point, you can do a point 5. <sighs> 0.5. I thought about a point five, but this film did teach me how to hypnotize a chicken. <laughs> so it got, it got one star for that because that was awesome. And I want a chicken now to do that too. But everything else is just a complete, absolute waste of time. I, if it wasn't for word minimums and I'm trying to 
have this like shed of professionalism, I had to, I, it would honestly have been one sentence review. And I think honestly, that's all it should get. Like this movie should not be talked about. We shouldn't let it be known that this exists. We should just act like it never happened. Well, um, I, I, just I think hide it away somewhere. I didn't. This is one of these movies. I saw this a long time ago when it first came out on VOD, and I honestly remember almost nothing about it. I remember a bratty little girl being being an asshole. She's an asshole. Yeah, I, yeah, I was gonna, She's I was, just an asshole. I was trying to come up with a something something yeah, a good word can, for it. Yeah. Kid, kids can be assholes. Let's just, yeah, let's she's, just put she's that kind out of there. an asshole, and she does a bunch of stuff. She's really destructive, and then she meets. Uh, it, it's a frustrating movie, really. It's it's irritating as all hell. I mean, it's it's just, there's no reason for this to exist. I mean, maybe he's posing a question like, what would happen to a child if there was absolutely no parental, you know, instruction, guidance, yeah. anything like that? How would they come out? Yeah, that's that's all well and good, but. I mean, there's nothing here. Like, okay, they come out as an asshole. I mean, there's just nothing. There's no subtext. There's not. I mean, I see that he's trying to go for something with the woman being trapped in the well, which is, you know, she, the little girl comes across this woman. But I mean, the line delivery from the woman in the well is just so fucking terrible. So awful. It's. I mean, all the acting is laughable. And I've actually read a couple of reviews that were like commending the young girl in the film which is uh sydney aguar and i'm sorry but she it was not good acting no no one demonstrated good acting in this film it was terrible through and through everything about it it's just awful yeah i think i was a little i was a little more lenient on everything than you were but when when this first came out and i saw it i didn't i was like i don't i don't want to review that <laughs> like it was it was so meaningless to me i was just like nah, no no i know that. it, it, that's what we should have stuck to that we should have just i i apologize to people for letting them know that that exists yeah well but i am i am here to tell you do not see it <laughs> don't see kid thing there you go don't see kid thing and just still just be apprehensive to anything else david zellner makes Seems like a, a rare misstep for oscilloscope. Yeah, the, the, what the hell were they thinking? Well, the the tone of the movie and the look of the movie definitely fits with their recent releases. Like, I mean, it's it's seriously it's a pile of shit. It, that's what it is. It's the equivalent of a pile of shit, but in film form. That's yeah, what it is. I I, I was a little. I was a little more okay with it than you. I didn't. I was angered. I didn't mind it that much. Angered, as you can tell by my review. I was angry. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know. It's it was fine to me. All right. Let's talk about Elysium. Todd Wilcox. Thank you so much for uh, joining us. To talk about this. How are you doing? Fine. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. Good. Uh, I do have a synopsis here for Elysium. Set in the year 2154, where the very wealthy live on a man-made space station while the rest of the population resides on a ruined Earth, a man takes on a mission that could bring equality to the polarized worlds. 
This is written and directed by Neil Blomkamp, who did District 9, and it stars Matt Damon, Jodie Foster, Charlotte Copley, even though I haven't, I always have the hardest time saying his name for some reason. <laughs> I don't, I don't know why. Uh, it also stars Alice Braga and Diego Luna and William Fickner, who I'm a big fan of. So your review is up on the site now. So I think I'll start it off with some of my initial thoughts. Now I did check out some other reviews for this. Mm-hmm. And uh, it currently has like a 66 or somewhere around there on Rotten Tomatoes. And I got to say, I really enjoyed this this movie. I was pleasantly surprised. Now, I was a big fan of District 9, so I kind of had a feeling that I was going to like this. But there have been a lot of sort of negative reviews coming out about it. So I was a little apprehensive going into it. But overall... I had a really fun time with it. I thought that the the story was interesting. It was unique. Uh, I loved all the effects work. Pretty much everything as far as the visuals, except for a few different things that we can get into. Um, but overall, I really enjoyed this film. What did what were your initial thoughts? Oh, that I probably should have liked it more. I hoped I I hoped I would have liked it more, but. You can see from the review that I I struggle with that review too because I kept changing it from like six and a half to seven and a half mm-hmm. back and forth and I was like no it's too good for a six and a half but it's not really a three and a half kind of star kind of movie it's not a four star and I had a really hard time comparing it to District Nine in my head mm-hmm. which I thought was so perfect that was such a brilliant film um, so I, it wasn't as good as I would have liked for it to have been but it was still a good 97 minutes in the theater. It was, yeah. it was really good. Um, I probably, I know that the last paragraph of that review for anyone who reads it probably comes off really critical, but it's just where I was summing up why I, I thought it could have been better and what annoyed me about it. Mm-hmm. Um, because when it's Blomkamp after District 9, I just, I don't know, I expected sophomore genius, but anyway. But it was yeah. still really good. People should see it. We recommend it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I would definitely recommend it. But um, the there were a few things that I had issues with, mainly in like the second and third acts. Mainly just the second act. I had some issues with just it. It started off so strong to me. Like I was so into this world uh, from from the beginning. But then, like, maybe at the midway point, it just kind of slowed down and there weren't as many character moments and there wasn't as much kind of action that was happening. And I felt like there was a bit of a, a lull in there. And that that kind of... Um, I, I didn't like that aspect of it too much. The, the action itself, I thought, was incredible. Uh, however, that being said, I thought that they used the shaky cam way too much in this Mm -hmm. like the i thought that the camera got so shaky at certain points that it was like dizzying i saw this at the imax Mm -hmm. and i was just like holy shit what is happening here (laughs) but also the i thought all the especially the the first scene when they go after um when they go after uh william uh fickner yeah that that scene was incredible. 
I thought that, and there was a really interesting camera shot that they did. I don't know if you remember this, but it was it was just a quick like trick that they used, and I can't really describe it. But it was when they were on the ground. It was the the camera was sort of tracking Matt Damon. Mm-hmm. And it looked so cool how they did it. I don't know exactly what it was. It was almost it almost looked like when they strapped the camera to the front of the actor, you know, and and have it basically move with them. But it was like from behind. Oh, do you remember that? God, no. That <laughs> there was that was so that all that happened really fast. Yeah. How you saw that? I have no idea. Yeah, it was just a really cool little camera trick that they used, and they use it i think that they use it once more near the end but i thought that it looked so cool one of my favorite things about this film is just the technology and the look of like the the suits that they wear and the weapons i thought that the weapons were awesome just like in district nine and the the robots i thought the robots looked incredible what, the thing about the 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 uh, weaponizing the body, armorizing it, weaponizing it, and the weapons themselves, as you mentioned them, seem so realistic, as mm-hmm. if as if that's maybe like five years down the road or something. Yeah, well, the the one that they used, it just looked like some sort of modified AK forty seven. That's exactly right. what it looked like. And and he did that in District Nine, where things seemed really. It's future, but it's believable. It's not that far future. Exactly. Yeah. You, you had to. You didn't have to suspend too much disbelief to get kind of to the droids and all that. Um, whether or not the parole officer is a robot, and fifty years from now, I don't know. But yeah, that that I thought was getting into a little bit of like a total recall territory. Mm-hmm. But there were a couple other things like uh, just the whole. The whole concept of a, a bed that basically cures you of everything instantly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that maybe that could be a little bit hard to swallow for some people, but it, it didn't bother me too much. Um, or that you could have lawns in space. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what that. Was. <laughs> I don't know what that was all about. Maybe it was some kind of like astroturf or something. <laughs> We're gonna have lawns that and trees that were bearing fruit in space without any kind of uh, covering or anything. You could just land right on a lawn. I thought that was pretty interesting. There must have been some sort of artificial atmosphere happening there. Because they kept saying when when there were like ships coming in, they kept saying it's entering our atmosphere. So there must have been some sort of uh, something there that was creating an atmosphere. But... Uh, what did what did you think of the look of Earth compared with like Elysium? Good. It was a little. Uh, Earth was a little District Nine ish, um, where, but in the sense that he didn't he didn't show us anything we hadn't seen before. Elysium was ridiculous. Like, what is that? That was completely new. Um, I loved the 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 scene when they first went to Elysium, and there was like that kind of like swooping camera shot and they showed like they went inside and you could see that it was like curved like everything mm-hmm. was circular and how like everything kind of went up i thought that that was like really really cool looking yeah i, I like the look of of that but yeah earth did have a district nine vibe to it which i was totally okay with i like 
science fiction movies that that have that look you know that kind of dystopian Mm -hmm. future look where everything's dirty and run down on top of each other yeah so many of us yeah yeah i like that a lot i I think that that in this case it, it worked and just the attention to detail in this film i thought was was really good everything looked so real and defined i just i liked that a lot about it. Yeah, and that's where most of the reviews, because I after, I didn't read any before I wrote mine, and then afterward I read, because I never try to be influenced, but then I read a lot of them. And they were they were all very, it seemed like they were all pretty praiseworthy of the look, the visuals oh, yeah. of Earth, Elysium, down to the little things like, well, little, but I mean like the weapons and mm-hmm. the armor and so forth. But uh, yeah, that's where that's where Blondkamp really nailed it. But on the on the character side, mm-hmm. I just was bored. Yeah, I got really bored really fast. I, I think I agree. It started well. I was very in, interested. I was interested in those two kids, Max and Frey. And then when he grew up, just the older he got, so to speak, the less interested I became. Right. He he Jody didn't. Foster, I almost stood up when she. I, not to, we don't want to give anything away, but we can she, do it. We can do a spoiler section after we talk about just kind of the general stuff. Yeah. If you want, when she when she has a moment, I was very excited because she was uh, she was a rather annoying secretary. But anyway, I I thought that Matt Damon was kind of underutilized in this film. I, I felt like his character was pretty flat. Yeah, and uh, Jodie Foster, she was fine, but. Again, I just don't think they really went far enough with with kind of developing the characters. I thought that the most interesting character was uh, Charlotte Copley's character. Him I thought, and, and Spider, I liked. Yeah, and I li- I liked Spider as well. I thought that he is a villain. Is he was a good villain? I mean, mm-hmm. he was just so evil, and uh, there was he he does such terrible things that. I liked him. I thought he was great in it. Really, I think that he was probably the most interesting character in the entire film. Yeah, I would have, not preferred, only, to, I would just, have preferred to follow him around a little. Yeah, I mean, not longer, o- not but, only just because of like who he is and how he acted, but just the the type of gadgets he had. I mean, he had so many different like weapons <laughs> and different things. It's like, what is he going to pull out next? You know. Well, people who haven't seen it, then will who like him and will like he just you think you you see him at towards the beginning and you think we I didn't even know we were going to see him really again or how much we were going to see of him. Who knew that he would be so big in the third? Oh yeah, yeah, he's he's definitely one of the major roles in this. And one of the things I thought was funny is that it seemed like uh, Matt Damon's character Max. It just seemed like he was constantly being hurt and blacking out and then waking up in a different place and wondering what was going on. He blacks out three times in the movie and both times they do, you know, the the whole dramatic right. waking up and like what happened? Like that type of thing. <laughs> that that felt kind of grating and there were a couple there were some other kind of like melodramatic moments to it where I was just like, all right, it's kinda lame. The the locket thing I thought was pretty yeah. lame. And honestly, I I'm not sure that I was really buying the whole 
love interest angle that was no. that was going on. I really feel like Frey, who we should say is the little girl that he mm-hmm. that Max, they be, they're best friends and they've got the, you know, F and M forever and all this kind of stuff. And then no, and then she's introduced as a uh, like a plot twist. But we haven't seen her since she's a little girl. Well, I mean we followed him and she's just she comes on in the second act and you think, Oh, well, what the hell is she doing here? Yeah. I think we could have cut that whole thing out and added more character development of Carlisle and uh, Delacorte and all these different who who Foster plays and Fitchner and so forth. And yeah. and followed them and developed them and just left her the and, love story part of it behind. Yeah, Diego Luna's character of Julio as well. I'm not going to say, you know, I'm not going to give away any plot details about what happens to any of these characters, but I, I feel like they could have, I mean, it, if they made him out to be like he was going to be, you know, he was like his best friend and he was going to mm-hmm. be doing this with him. And I was like, oh, sweet. Because I didn't even know Diego Luna was in this. And when I saw him and they were like teaming up, I was like, oh, this is this is cool. This is taking this is taking a nice little turn. But, you know, they I just feel like that they needed to spend more time with him as well because they they take the time to establish him. And they we spend enough time with him at the beginning to get to know who he is, mm-hmm. you know, but then they just kind of abandon it. Right. And and it, well, this is it's getting too hard to talk about without spoiling it. So. Yes. Um, do you have anything else to add before we jump into spoilers? Because there's there's quite a number of spoiler type things that I want to talk about. I know this is why this is why so much of the review is a play by play because I wanted you know it was, <laughs> I wrote a spoiler version because it was easier to mm-hmm. write, but I avoided it in the end because I hate that kind of review. But right, yeah. All right, well let's let's go ahead and jump into some spoilers. Uh, for Elysium, if you haven't seen the movie yet, just uh, go ahead and fast forward through this. I'll have the time codes in the show notes so you uh, don't hear anything. Um, going back to... Okay, so we're in a spoiler section now. Going back to the Diego Luna character. Ugh. Like, the fact that they just kill him off so easily, that's one thing. Okay, to yeah. to establish this character and to kill him off. But I thought that it was going to be like, oh, his his friend is dead. Now he has... more of a reason to do this mission get revenge for his you know fallen comrade but they never they never go back to it like he's just like oh whatever yep he just is treated as disposable as a character as the characters are treated disposable by the planet they live on i was i I didn't mind that he died i just was like well (laughs) yeah that that was sort of meaningless to the film it was right like Oh, well. And uh, William Fickner, who I thought was going to be one of the big bad guys, you know, he he, he gets off pretty quickly, too, which I was okay with that happening. It um, was a pretty good death. I did like that overhead shot of him Yeah, strapped into his, <laughs> still strapped into his whatever that shuttle was. What did you... Heart now, exploding. What did you think about uh, when Charlotte Copley got his face blown off? <laughs> <laughs> that was uh, he wasn't the f- we saw we saw somebody else well in that fight they explode one of the mm, spiders yeah. guys um 
spider, we should say, we didn't say before, at least is the guy, the, the guy running the illegals. I referred to him as a coyote, the way mm-hmm. we, we would somebody bring in somebody over the Mexican border. But he, he sends his guys out to help Max and, and Julio's there. And, and like you said, they make a big deal about Julio's coming with me and all this, and then he's gone. But Charlto's character does explode one of Spider's guys. And so I knew you could explode people, but I didn't expect to see Charlto's face come off. But yeah, his. Uh, it was a pretty cool moment, but. A grenade literally blows his face off. <laughs> and then, uh, and then of course, they regenerate him. What'd you think about the fact that they regenerated his, Just, his face? By that point, by the time that happens, you're either in or you're not i mean by that point i was just in that the thing worked so i was uh i can again i can see how that would be problematic for people Uh, Mm -hmm. but for me i thought that first of all it was a really cool looking effect that they did and secondly because i liked him so much as a villain i was glad to have him back (laughs) and when that when he came back and that like twist kind of happened there where he then immediately kills Jodie Foster. Mm. I th- I thought that that was I thought that was really really cool and really that moment kind of redeemed the movie for me because by that point I was kind of I was kind of feeling um not bored but I just wanted it to pick up a little bit. This should and, be better. Yeah, like I I was just kind of it felt a little dull by that point, but I feel like it really picked up. And the the end fight between uh, Kruger and Max, I thought was pretty pretty cool. Uh, it's kind of um, kind of a typical you know boss fight on a giant catwalk, you know. Yes, kind of kind of Star Wars ish. Yeah, we're on a catwalk and somebody's going over any minute with spider there with a laptop hooked in trying to get into the to the <laughs> i just like that i just like the fact that he's he's back there with a computer in his lap trying to yeah trying to get into the core in, or whatever yeah. and and max <laughs> max and kruger having this fight to the death not not like 10 feet away uh i don't know that was that was that was a good final act though um a good and then, one and, and then and then, of course, Kruger explodes. There's so many. I, I feel like um, Neil Blomkamp just loves to make people explode in his movies. Because there were so many people that got ex- exploded in uh, yeah. District 9, too. And right. there was a ton of exploding people. I loved the scene with the, I think it's called a chemtrail gun that he grabbed when he was on in the armory on Elysium. And he shot that one guy through the wall and you could just see <laughs> his body just get ripped to shreds. Yeah. Yeah. And did he explode somebody as well? Well, he sort of exploded because he was shooting that chemtrail gun. It was going through the wall and it was like oh. ripping into that other guy yeah, yeah, yeah. as he was running and it like blew off his arms and. I mean, and there was he basically some good, exploded. There's some good use of uh, of slow motion as well. Oh yeah, I mean, where there... you could really kind of take it because a lot of it, I know, I say you mentioned it as well toward the top of this, and I said it in the review. If you weren't careful, some of that was kind of nauseating because there was a, a whole lot happening, and the shaky cam did not help. 
And that may have been what I was referring to when I said I got a little nauseated by it. Oh, definitely. Some of the, yeah. But when he slows it down, when he pulls the camera back and slows it down, there's like one scene where Shalto's jumping from mm-hmm. somewhere mm-hmm. and it's in slow-mo. I mean, you could kind of take it in a little better. Yeah. I didn't want the whole thing to be slow-mo, but just a few scenes for effect, that, that was helpful. And it looked really cool, too. Yeah, I liked all the slow motion work. I thought that, and it was really interesting because every time that they would do the slow motion, there'd be all kinds of, like, particles and things kind of floating through the air. And that kind of added to the style of it all. It almost mm-hmm. felt like um, like in Dread when they would do that. Did you see Dread? I did see Dread. Yeah. It was like when they would do the slow-mo in Dread and there'd just be, like, things kind of just floating. And it just, it looked... You know, it was like the kind of artful violence that we've been seeing more of recently. Mm-hmm. And I, I liked that a lot. I mean, just all the action I thought was, was great, especially that initial scene um, when he when he first puts up the force field and he's like shooting in slow motion. And yeah, I think I think a guy explodes. He explodes a guy there. Or no, that was the robot when he first shoots that. AK forty seven gun and it oh, hits yeah, with the yeah and it hits the robot and it just explodes and that was done in slow motion. It looked great. It looked great. I think that's in the trailer or some of the part of it. Yeah, I think part of it's in the trailer. Makes it look really good. Makes you want to go see it. The, the, all of those scenes really. He was quite adept at and what I mean. The director was quite. What just kills me, see, is why not match that with three or four character driven. Uh, thing that we could follow better and develop and match it to the action because otherwise you get this little lopsided. Yeah, that's what bothered me. The action was far better than the story. Uh, what did you think uh, before we get out of the spoiler section? What did you think of the conclusion with Matt Damon ultimately sacrificing himself and then everybody becomes a citizen? Becomes a citizen of Elysium. It was a little precious, but. I thought <laughs> it was a little precious. First must, of all, first of I all, I saw it coming a mile away. As soon as they had that, he had that conversation with the little girl where she was telling him the story about mm-hmm. the, the hippo and the, Your which cat. I thought was a little bit, a little bit saccharine for my taste. But um, I knew that that was going to happen. I knew that that was going to be the end. He was going to sacrifice himself upload his brain data to the core and reboot the system. Uh, But it made me think though, like what happens now are all, because nobody wants to live on earth. You kidding me? Right. Does that mean like everybody on earth is going to try to pack themselves into Elysium? Like what's going to happen? That's huge unanswered. And the fact that, see, this is why we needed a spoiler review because a spoiler laden review because I wanted to say, well, no, wait a minute. They send Elysium automatically. When I loved how easy it was too to make them citizens. It just—it was just a switch. Spider just they, they knew, and, and they knew everybody too. Like they yeah. had everybody's name somehow. Right. And Elysium sends those automated med shuttles mm-hmm. down to Earth, and it obviously showed. Well, I can't say obvious. This is a question because. These people start running towards these med shuttles. So these are like ambulances that have arrived. And and they're run by droids and they all have medical bays in them. 
So then I'm thinking, well, now are they just going to go in and get healed and then come out? Yeah, or, I think I like, think that that's what it's going to be. Yeah. Or was it going to take them to Elysium? Well, that's what I thought at first. Like at first, I was like, before they showed the inside, I was like, oh, they're probably they're going to like be transport. Yeah, like trucking all these people in to get them healed. But then when they opened it and they showed that there were like rows and rows of those healing chamber things, I was like, oh, they're probably just going to heal everybody there on Earth. But And then send them back into debris and... and yeah, and, and they say multiple times that the air is completely polluted. So people are probably dying every day just from the air pollution alone. But they're citizens now of Elysium, which means... Which means they can all just leave. (laughs) They can all just leave and pack in and and ruin Elysium. We saw one tiny, tiny bit of LA. That's that's the other thing. We just saw a little portion of LA. I mean, this is apparently a worldwide thing. So, And there were millions of people in that one place in LA. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, what's going to happen? Plus, uh, Spider is now... The de facto president and he i mean let's be honest i mean power corrupts you know so he could end up be becoming worse than the current president yeah he was see he's that he's that guy he's the kind he's the gray he's the gray guy in this story yeah who haven't seen the movie yet right where matt damon's character is not all good, but he's he's basically the hero. He's not he doesn't even rise to me to anti hero. He's he's the hero. And well, so of sorts. Well I, I would argue that up until the very end, he's only looking out for himself. Like his ultimate goal is I gotta get to Elysium and heal myself. That's it. Yes, that's it at the beginning, and then they throw the whole Frey and her daughter. Yeah, but then, that doesn't even happen until he gets on the ship with Charlotte Copley and sees that they're there. No, well, yeah, because he does, she heal. she, she patches him up and he leaves her. But, um, I just think he's not, he's not quite, he's, no, he's I, painted I as a little more good than. Right. Not, so. I, I wouldn't call him an anti-hero. I think that he probably would be considered a hero. I mean, especially given what he does at the end, but. Yeah. And then. But and, yes. And Foster Foster only shows any kind of gray when she's telling the president, this is what we have to do to survive. And because she orders the shooting down of the illegal. Yeah. Which is, which I thought was ridiculous from the beginning because the one ship that does get through, as soon as the ship lands, they just detain everybody and send them back. (laughs) So it's like, why couldn't you just send robots to detain the other two when they land as well? Why kill them? Because he's making a political point there, which he he made his little political point in District 9 about apartheid. Here he wants to make a lot of them. I don't know. Yeah, and that's that's actually something I want to get more into after we get out of the spoilers, because I think that we can talk about that without giving anything away. But like you were saying with Jodie Foster's character, I mean, at the end... She doesn't want uh, to be helped in any way. She's just like, oh, just let me die. Which (laughs) I thought, which to me felt very uncharacteristic of what we had seen when 
clearly she's willing to do anything to preserve her way of life. I mean, she killed 47 innocent women and children. Right. And and then all of a sudden she gets stabbed in the throat and she's just like, all right, whatever, (laughs) just let it happen. But there were a lot, see, there were a lot of those moments. Hers was a big one where her character just seemed to suddenly take a right turn somewhere. I mean, in that moment, but it seems like a, a not a lot of them, but a few of them do. I, I would argue even Matt Damon's character kind of takes. Oh yeah, I would. Like, I would say definitely does. So see, and those are your two big main characters, and and therefore the therefore I lost complete. I, I didn't like either one of them. I preferred all the uh, grayer characters that seemed to be a little more truthful. It, well, to who they were all the way through. Even with Spider, though. Up until the very end, again, he was just trying to get that data for the money. He just wanted money. Right. He wasn't trying to do anything noble or for the good of the people. And then at the very end, even when he was telling Matt Damon what the potential benefits of this information, what they could do with it, you were still never sure if he was actually going to use it for good or if he was just going to use it to you know try to buy his way into Elysium or or something else you know kind of shady mm-hmm. but you know of course at the end he he does redeem himself and proves that he is a good person unless unless he just wanted to become the leader right it's all left uh, open yeah so. yeah all right. Uh, any any final spoilers before we get out of this uh, this section? Yeah, the people uh, that you know. I don't know. I'm I'm th- I'm trying to think. Is there anything else? No. I, so, I mean, I think that I. They pretty all much, die. Well, yeah, <laughs> pretty pretty much everybody dies. Pretty much everybody dies. Um. But, well, actually, the more we talk about it, the less I like this movie, which is kind of funny because. I came out, I just saw it, like, I just got home <laughs> from a screening, and I was like, yeah, that was great, I was I was really into that, but now, talking about it, I'm just like, oh, man, I'm, just, I'm starting to find all the things that just didn't work, <laughs> but uh, let's, let's go ahead and get out of the spoiler section, so we're back, I want to talk about the, the message, and kind of the, the symbolism behind this movie, because it, it's, it's pretty overt, like District 9, but I think, like you said, he kind of, it's kind of a multifaceted uh, take on several different things. I mean, there's there's class division, of course, and then it seems like he's also kind of trying to tackle immigration as well. Yeah. Well, kind of. I mean, they, they use the word illegal, mm-hmm. and immigrant, and... <laughs> and... And plus, everybody, it seems like in the future... There are no uh, white people in Los Angeles. It's all Hispanic-speaking people, Spanish-speaking people. Yes, well, that was the most realistic uh, part of the movie because that will be true. So, uh, By 2154, yeah, it's possible. Yeah, it's very possible that will be true. And that, see, we, we will be the outlaw. We will be minorities. We know that's true. So um, he, do, he does immigration. He does uh, class... He does health care. Yeah. You can't, you can't pay for health care unless you're one of the rich. Um, so he, he tackles a, a, cup, a couple of different things. 
uh, too many in my point from my point of view it would too be, many too overtly yeah i mean it, the thing about it is and, and first of all like when they show the the residents of elysium uh it's all you know affluent looking white people with like cardigans and uh, all the kids are you know have perfectly groomed hair wearing like nice tucked in polo shirts and it's like that was just it was a little bit too much i mean i feel like he just really drove it home with this uh the one the whole one percent thing yeah, yeah, that was the other thing. It was very uh, Occupy Wall Street, 99ers and the one percenters. Uh, although the president was ethnic. Yeah. But, you know, he was, I don't know what he, I mean, I've seen that actor before, and maybe he, I know he's maybe some kind of um, Indian or Asian. So, so he throws that in, but obviously you could tell that he's the, <laughs> he's one of those that left, went to England educated at oxford all that right right so even he is not he's not ethnic like the guy running the uh you know the 7-eleven and the simpsons he's not that kind of ethnic yeah he was uh he was played by Ferran uh ferran tahir and he played uh president patel so i think that i'm thinking that he was supposed to be indian Mm -hmm. but yeah that but everybody else is white did you i mean like you said yeah, Everyone else is white. I think at the beginning, when they showed that one like model-looking uh, girl getting into the the chamber, mm-hmm. I think she might have been Asian. But oh, I don't remember her being Asian. But maybe not. Maybe she was just white. I thought she was blonde. She looked like Taylor Swift. Maybe that was maybe that was in one of the trailers I saw. Maybe so. I, I think don't know. Maybe I think it might have been a trailer or something. But anyway, it's just really too it's just too much and and the fact that he has to keep it's like you couldn't go 10 minutes without bumping into that idea mm-hmm. um and 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 i also mentioned in the review he's also making um because those are political social economic but he also makes a really kind of political i i think anyway maybe i just read into it of a kind of um war on terror post 9-11 attitude through foster's character uh i mean yeah that definitely could be i mean this tackles a lot of things i mean there's there's an entire scene where they deploy drones to Mm -hmm. you know search search for him and they're constantly cutting to camera shots of uh like satellite cams and things that that are scanning people and and looking for people so and I your mean, citizenship is under your skin. Yeah, uh, and I mean that like a chip. all all yeah. these things kind of just harken back to pretty much every sci-fi film where it all it's always a reflection of what's happening today. You know, it's it's always kind of a something that's blown out of proportion where if if things remain the way they are, they're just going to kind of balloon and get out of control and this is what we're going to have, you know, but uh, I will agree that I think that that some of the stuff was a little heavy-handed, a, l- a little bit too much at times. But, but he did it in District. See, with the this is what kills me, and why I keep comparing it to District Nine. In District Nine, where he's got all the action, but he also has character development, and then he has apartheid. But he does it so. It's also um, what, what word am I looking for? It, it's it's also kind of. Um, 
subtle is not the right word, but it's well, yeah. I mean, it it was it was sort of subtle, subtle. but it was like um, integrated into the story so perfectly and seamlessly, and so kind of quietly that it was just understood that that was a metaphor, and that well, yeah, you know, it made you care more about what was happening to the aliens than what? maybe you would have ordinarily well i think that that's that's the big thing is that it it was a metaphor it was not like this is not a metaphor this is the way it actually is i mean hispanic hispanic people you know forced out of you know this place that can help them and and you know all the other stuff that we mentioned too like there's no reading between the lines here it's all right there on the screen and I didn't. I didn't necessarily have uh, a big problem with it because I think that all the things that he addresses are real issues, and to me, it didn't really take too much away from the the story. I still enjoyed all the the action and the sometimes ridiculous, over the top violence of it. Uh, so that again, I can see how some people might have a problem with it, but. It didn't bother me too much, although, like you said, it would have been nice if he did it a little bit more subtle, like subtly. Um, mm-hmm. It wasn't as bad as uh, something like Killing Them Softly, where it's, <laughs> you know, on the radio, every scene on the TV, Not, like that was bad. Yeah, that was bad. That was a bad movie. This does it much better than that. It does, but see, when you compare it with, to, I'm sorry, just to repeat it, but you re, you compare it to what he did in District 9, where it, it's sort of a singular issue that unites the whole story. And this seemed to be multiple issues right. that he was, he didn't, it's like a roulette wheel. You just never knew which particular issue was going to drive the next 10 minutes. Yeah. That's how it seemed to me. I would have preferred one, two issues, and then we could have kind of just focused on the whole rich poor or something. Right. And all those other things are just happens. They just are trickle down from the fact that, and then you don't have to throw all everything, the kitchen sink in there. Yeah. And I think that that has to do with this being much larger in scope than district nine. I mean, obviously it had much higher budget than district nine and with district 9 it was such a sing- it it was such a focused story you know it was about this one guy doing this one thing in this in this camp right and the the film mainly just stayed on uh Charlotte Copley's character in in district 9 and uh the other thing that i wanted to mention that district 9 had a lot of humor in it too mhm district 9 was it did have some very heavy moments. It was, you know, sprinkled in with a lot of, of violence and, and kind of tough things. But at the same time, there were many moments to it where it was just funny. There were funny things that happened. And there was really nothing funny about this movie at all. I no. mean, there was nothing to bring, to, to lighten it up a bit. The District 9 also really paid for the sincere moments oh absolutely yeah like the moments between charlotte and his wife after he's infected the moment between the father alien and the little kid alien yeah that were kind of the sincere emotional moments were really paid for with what had come before and after and here when you do get the sincere moments 
they they either feel really kind of forced, like Max and Frey's non-romantic romance, or the last two minutes of the film where right. If that's what happens, <laughs> yeah, I'll probably just bleep that. But Thank you. yeah, I I agree completely. Like the the emotion just wasn't there. Like I wasn't the only emotion I felt was like during the action scenes where I was just like. I instantly turned into a dude and was like, fuck yeah, you know, like that type of stuff. <laughs> but, but like, as far as having some sort of uh, like resonance with the characters that that yeah. was not there at all. At it all. felt very cold. Yeah. So there you have it. Elysium. Uh, you gave it a seven out of 10 on the site. Uh, after discussing it, I, I was going into this discussion with a seven out of 10, but I think I'm probably gonna have to drop it down to like a six and a half or maybe a six. Yeah. I vacillated a lot, but yeah, I think it's still worth seeing. Did you see it in the IMAX? I did. Okay. Yeah. I thought it looked pretty good in the IMAX. Um, I was glad that they didn't go with the, the post conversion 3d. 3D. Yeah. Bullshit. I I made mention of that as well. Um, I think there are certain scenes that would have been just really hard to focus your pupils if it were in 3D. I don't think I could do it. Oh, that that shaky cam. Holy shit. <laughs> that was so intense. Did you see um did you see Hunger Games? Yes. There was some pretty intense shaky cam in that, I remember. And I blocked most of that out of my head. And uh the only reason I mentioned that is cuz I don't I don't recall any movies after that that has really bad shaky cam, but this one was really intense. Like, I don't understand why they went that right. It wasn't the whole way through, but no. there were a few moments where I was just like, holy shit, just but stop. Wasn't it, am I remember as it went on, it didn't, it got, the camera got stiller, didn't it? As mm-hmm. it, as it went along. Uh, a lot of the stuff that happened on Earth, like a lot of the fight scenes and stuff and scenes of action on Earth, it was really shaky. And then once it, they got up into Elysium and stuff, it, it calmed down. And perhaps that was because, I don't know, he's making some other point, but... <laughs> yeah, but, uh, I don't know. Probably. Don't know, maybe Earth is just really, really shaky. Maybe they were having constant earthquakes. It was, constant, it was just a constant earthquake. <laughs> just one big... Oh, they were in LA, so... Yep. I don't know. Well, there you have it. I, I'm gonna still say go check it out. It's it's still worth seeing in, on the big screen. It's certainly one of the most anticipated of the year. One of the more... or How do I say this? The more anticipated that actually got pretty close to the expectation compared to some other films. I think this is doing very well in theaters as as well. So it's number 1 right now. Yeah, so it's 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 doing very well by we're recording this on Saturday so we don't have like the weekend reports in yet, but I'm sure that it's going to clean up at the box office. I read and an it, estimate though. Yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't mean I read an estimate of maybe 30, 32 million domestically for the weekend. For the weekend, yeah, yeah, which actually still puts it behind District 9's opening, but um Hmm. And for a hundred million dollar movie, they they really need to make thirty million. Yeah, I think that this will this will make its money back, but you know maybe 
maybe he needs to go back to a smaller budget for his next film. I don't see him returning to a small budget, though, because I remember that that was the whole thing. Like, District 9 was a sleeper hit. Nobody mm-hmm. knew what that was. It had a small budget, and it just, like, exploded because it was just so good. And then now he's got $100 million to work with. Just further proof that the more money you throw at something... Yeah, does not I mean, mean the better it will be. <laughs> doesn't necessarily mean it'll be better. Now, did you see Pacific Rim? I saw Pacific Rim. Uh, yes. <laughs> where, where where do you sit between like comparing these two? Because they're 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 kind of similar in that they're they're big blockbuster action sci fi films. Um, I think I I would actually rate this one higher um, than Pacific Rim. I, I I definitely had issues with Pacific Rim uh, as well, but yeah. I don't know. I don't know where I'd sit. Well, just from and, and I love Guillermo del Toro, but um, I, this Pacific Rim was just too much. It was just too. It was too big. <laughs> it was just, yeah. It was the, the the beasts were too big, and the robots were too big, and um, and there. I didn't really care about anybody, even though it had lots of earnest moments. Yeah. Uh, um, but it was kind of crowd-pleasing, too. Yeah, I, I liked I liked Pacific Rim quite a bit, but I, I don't know if I'd, if, where I'd stack these two. That, that'll be something I'll have to... I'll have to sit with both of them, because I just saw Elysium today, so I need to process it for a little bit, but... So, Elysium, playing in theaters now. Uh, Go check it out. All right, thanks a lot, Todd, for taking some time to talk with us. Anytime. All right, let's go ahead and move on to some predictions. Oh, okay. Last week, uh, Ernie and I did these predictions. So, we did Percy Jackson, Sea of Monsters. I said 25, he said 12, actual 34 on Percy Jackson, Sea of Monsters. Who reviewed that? Did anyone review no, that? No, we did not oh. cover it. Did not cover that one. Come on. We're the Millers. I said 36. Ernie said 24. Actual 41. That's quite high. That's surprising. Yep. Still have no desire to see it. Elysium. I said 63. Ernie said 61. Actual 66. Bravo. Yeah. And finally, Planes. I said 15. Ernie said 18. <laughs> <laughs> actual 24 Uh, wow (laughs) way to go disney seems like you probably should have just left that come straight out to uh video or whatever wow next week we have a huge week huge week next week we have kick-ass 2 what are you thinking on this one oh um thinking like a 74 i hope i hope that it's good it it concerns <laughs> me that Matthew Vaughn didn't direct it, but yeah, the who did they they get they got uh, was it Jeff Wadlow is that who's doing the the sequel? Because I think he's done some decent stuff too. He's done. Uh, I'm gonna say sixty eight. What has Jeff Wadlow done? I don't know. Oh, he never backed down. Ugh. You remember that? Yes. That was amazing. Yes, I remember that. By amazing, I mean terrible. Yeah. So, no, this is going to be awful. Uh, then we have Jobs. I think this is going to be pretty bad, so I'm going to say 40. Mm. 
I'm going to say 38. Mm. Okay. And then we have Paranoia. This is the one with Liam Hemsworth and uh, Harrison Ford, which also looks pretty bad to me. So what are you thinking on Paranoia? Mm. What a generic name for a movie. What a generic poster. What a just everything. Everything about this just screams Manila folder. Yep. Oof. Um, I'm going to go like a 30. 30? Uh, I'll say 32. And then we have Lee Daniels, the butler. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's unfortunate. I'm going um, to say 82 on that one. 82. I'm going to go I'm going to go 80. I have no desire to see it whatsoever, unfortunately. I just like it just doesn't in- interest me. In fact, I was I was thinking about it like all the, you know, all the big award uh contenders are going to be coming out pretty soon and mm. none of them really stand out to me. 12 Years a Slave stands out. Oh, uh, yeah. But mm-hmm. none of the other ones really uh appeal to me too much no it's i'm not a huge fan of this time of the year uh yeah i mean bombarded bombarded with all this oscar bait yeah i mean at least it's not as bad as january february where there's like nothing (laughs) nothing (laughs) there's like literally nothing uh limited release we have abandoned mine which we'll have a review up for that on thursday ain't them body saints which i'm very excited for yes Yes. Austin Land and Ain't Them Body Saints comes out on VOD, I think. When? Not this weekend, but next weekend, maybe? Oh, my God. Or not this coming weekend, but next weekend. Oh, my God. Austin Land, which looks pretty bad. Cutie and the Boxer. Dude, it's about Jane Austen. It can't be bad. It's sort of about Jane Austen. Anything that's it's, remotely... It's about Jane Austen connected. fans, which is even which worse. Which is even... Oh, my God. How, how... I mean, you can't make anything worse than Jane Austen, and then they did it. Yep. They, they made it about her fans. Uh, wow. Cutie and the Boxer, which is a documentary. Eh, it looks okay. Looks like it'd be a cute movie. I'm, I'm interested in this. Uh, Inshallah, I guess that's how you say it. Sure. That comes out, and you're, you're going to be covering that one for us, right? That's right. And Ooh. Drew, the man behind the poster, debuts in New York. That's playing a couple select cities right now, but it comes out in New York uh, this Friday. I really want to see that. I'm a big fan of Drew Struzan. Drew Struzan? Drew Struzan. That's a difficult name to say. Yeah. Big fan of his, so I'm, I'm very anxious to see this. Uh, Ernie, I think, saw it at Comic-Con. Ernie has seen everything already pretty much just throw that out there uh video on demand releases i have three here that are going to be pre- <laughs> that may, may or may not happen yeah pre-theatrical or day and date and that's dear governor cuomo okay. which i believe is a documentary the perfect stranger which uh, doesn't look very good and then abandoned mine which we just mentioned uh which that's a that's a solid three yeah which um I guess I can't really say anything about it yet, but yeah, that comes out Friday as well. And DVD and Blu-ray releases. This is for Tuesday, (laughs) August 13th, 2013. We have a band called Death, 
which uh, I got my Blu-ray in the mail yesterday for this. Did you? Yeah, I haven't checked it out yet, but... Uh, the Big Wedding, which looks awful. The Company You Keep, which I'm actually interested in. I, n- I didn't get a chance to see that when it came out, but that's the one with Shia LaBeouf and Robert Redford. Indeed. Indeed. Hatchet 3, which is bad. To skip that. What Maisie Knew, which looks pretty bad to me. N- not my thing. So that, That's the one with Alexander Skarsgård and, oh, somebody else. Oh. I can't remember who the, the female lead is in that. Yeah, I can't. I don't remember either. And Heirs of the Human Body, which Julianne uh, Moore. Julianne Moore. Yeah, that's what that's what I thought. Uh, Heirs of the Human Body, which is a pretty decent like science fiction thriller. We uh, reviewed that a while back, and we interviewed the director. So I'd I'd say check that one out too. Also, (laughs) also a movie a movie. Just as this is a bonus, a movie called Three Geezers. I yes. want you to look this this um, cover. You know I'm doing it. I want you, you to look this you cover up. Say it. You didn't even have to say it. Because it pretty you, much has the best cover I have ever seen. Ever. The look on J.K. Simmons' face <laughs> is fantastic. Just the look on everyone's face, really, and the fact that it just says a funny movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's a funny movie. I don't even think that those are like stills from the actual movie. I think those are just like headshots. Yeah, no, because that's it's like Tim Allen's headshot from back in like ninety one. Yeah, he does not look like that anymore. Yep, he looks like he's like thirty eight there. <laughs> what the? Fuck? What the hell? When I was going through what, the. I was going through. What the, is this? Yeah, when I was looking at all the stuff coming out, I saw that and I was like, "What is this?" Three geezers. This is this is amazing. Yep. Okay. As soon as I saw that, I was like, oh, Sam yeah. Sam Raimi's in it. Yep. It's got oh man, it's got everybody. This is amazing. Cocoon meets the Hangover. <laughs> that's what that's what it's fucking built as. That's amazing. Oh, this God. holy shit, this exists. Three geezers. Oh, you got it. We gotta cover this. This needs to be covered. I mean, I'm assuming it's straight to. Um, I'm assuming that it's straight to DVD. It's it's directed by J.K. Simmons' wife. Ah, uh, that's what's going on here. Breckenmeyer. Breckenmeyer. A funny movie. <laughs> <laughs> I love that it's it's the greatest thing um, I've ever seen. I just can't get over this. I've been staring. I've been staring at, <laughs> since I found this yesterday. I've been just staring. I'm gonna set this as my desktop wallpaper. It needs to be. It needs to be plastered everywhere. Everywhere. Unbelievable. All oh, right. Any um. Are there any criterions? There is actually one. One criterion. Uh, movie from 1966. Uh, John Frankenheimer's Seconds, which actually looks amazing. Really. It's got a great cover. Oh my god! This. This is awesome. I can't wait to see this. Thank you, Criterion. Uh, concerns of middle-aged banker dissatisfied with uh, suburbia. Likes to undergo a strange and elaborate procedure that will grant him a new life. Um, that just sounds awesome. That sounds awesome. I, I might have to I'm, watch that this week. Yeah. I'm so excited for this. Hmm. All right, well, I think that that wraps it up. 
For all the latest film news and reviews, visit us at filmpulse.net. Send us an email at feedback at filmpulse.net. Follow us on Twitter at filmpulse.net. And be sure to rate us on iTunes. We appreciate that very much. For filmpulse.net, my name's Adam. And I'm Kevin. And we will see you on Thursday for Ryan Watches a Movie. Simbalta, send it to me to go star.